We're going to jump into this. I'm so pumped. Um, This was going to be one message, but it turned into two. So this is going to be the setup, and the conclusion will be next week. Um, This is a continuation of bilingual faith. I was going to end it, but out of uh, a few people requesting, hey, can we stay on this subject? Um, We're going to extend it a couple more weeks. And uh, bilingual faith, just so we can get a refresher, is this idea that we are to engage heaven and earth. Jesus came speaking the language of heaven, and he also came and he spoke the language of earth. That's why he could minister to the prostitute, to the drunk, to the thief, uh, the tax collector, the IRS agent. Although the Pharisees despised him for doing that, um, Jesus had great success in turning the people bound by this world into citizens of heaven. The Pharisees only spoke the language of heaven, but they couldn't connect with earth. And so bilingual faith is this idea that we want to develop in such a way that we fully embrace our humanity, but we do so in a Christ-like way. That the stronger we get in Jesus, and the more holy we get, and the more mature we get, and the more victory we walk in, we don't forget that we are still sinners saved by grace. Can I get an amen? Amen. Because there's this weird phenomenon that takes place, and this, the title of the message today is The Fine Line. Say that with me, The Fine Line. There's this weird thing that happens, and it's this. We start out, most of us, our walk with God looks a little something like getting saved and experiencing the joy of salvation, knowing that something happened in our heart. But then you get into the process of sanctification, and you realize that Getting saved wasn't the complete package. That was the start. Salvation is past, present, and future. I was saved when in a little church on 28th and Harrison, I opened my heart up and I said yes to Jesus. I was saved. I'm being saved because since that day, knuckleheaded Dave has had to go through a process of becoming more Christ-like. And one day I will be saved when I cross that line for eternity and I look back and say, no more tears, no more suffering, right? I got like, I'm finally past the finish line and I will be like Christ and I will have the mind of Christ and I will not have to worry about the cycles of pain and, and, and discipline and, and overcoming. It will be completed. But what happens in that process while we're on earth is We start like this. I don't know if you've ever been, so I'm on this side of victory. God, you have promised me victory, and I know I'm saved, and and I just, God, I don't want to live any longer with these self-destructive habits. God, I'm so sick of it. I know I I don't have to. I know I don't want to. And, And I got more victory than I did last year. But, but God, it just feels like I have so far to go. God, when am I going to change? Lord, I, I know you love me and I know you forgive me and I know I'm saved. And I know I'm going to heaven, but God, I got this anger problem and I, and I got this judgmental problem and I got this insecurity or, you know, whatever it is. And, and God, I just, I battle shame and I battle this condemnation and this guilt that this isn't your best. And so on this side where we're struggling to get victory, although we're saved, 
We tend to battle what's called shame or condemnation. And the enemy comes and says, look how bad you suck. Look how bad you are. Look how terrible you are. You'll never make it. How dare you approach God? Oh, you're just going to run into prayer. You're going to lift your hands in worship and sing how he's Lord. When he wasn't Lord on Wednesday night, he wasn't Lord Friday night when you were dropping it like it was hot, right? I don't know what your deal was. But so we live on this side, shame. And then this weird thing happens. The Holy Spirit starts to move. We start to get sick of the, the crazy cycle. We start to get victory. We start to become more obedient. We start to become more holy. We start to gain ground. And all of a sudden, like, man, I haven't cussed in like four months. I haven't looked at pornography. Man, I haven't uh, yelled at anybody. I haven't chased anybody down on the freeway using signs, telling them they're number one, you know? <laughs> like, man, I'm, I'm getting some victory. Man, I'm tithing faithfully. I'm trusting God with my finances. I lived under this fear. God's blessing my finances because I'm giving. Like, man, I'm, I'm at peace. My marriage is whole. And then this weird thing happens. The enemy sets this new trap. And we went from trying to achieve victory, living under the power of shame, to now walking in victory and shaming those who don't have the same victory as us. See, for the righteous and the victorious and the strong and the stable and the mature, there's a new trap laid and it's called self-righteousness. And there's a fine line between righteousness and pride. Next week, we're going to tear into it like a, like a barbecue on a summer day, right? We're going to just get barbecue sauce all over us and it's going to be good, but I want to show you a story in scripture that is one of the most fascinating and difficult accounts in all of the Bible. And although it's serious, I apologize in advance. I did see some humor in this and I prayed about it and I feel like Jesus was like, it's all right, man. It's, it's cool. So this is the story of arguably one of the most righteous human beings to ever walk the earth other than Jesus. His name is Job. This book is the oldest book in the Bible. Although Genesis deals with creation, the first book ever written was the book of Job. We're going to jump right into part one of the fine line. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. It doesn't get much better than that on your report card, amen? It really doesn't. On top of that, and, and again, this is 42 chapters and uh, we obviously don't have time to go through all of it, but he was also an amazing leader. He was an amazing orator. He was an engineer. He was an architect. He was a builder. There are many uh, historians who believe that Job was one of the first renowned pyramid builders. He's known for his structures. He's known for his mathematic genius. He's known for mentoring young people. He's known for eliminating poverty amongst widows and fatherless and, and confronting evil. This guy was righteous, meaning he did the right thing all of the time. That's why he was called blameless. His kids took advantage of the blessing on his life. He became very wealthy. There is a prosperity. I'm not saying that it's always financial, but um, just simple mathematics. When you serve God and you are a giver and the Bible says God gives seed to the sower and when you trust God with your money, the Lord gives back. Everything, Jesus said, the secret of the kingdom of God is this, seed, time, and harvest. When you give mercy, you receive mercy. When you give love, you receive love. 
When you give financially, you receive financially. This is the secret, Jesus said. If you understand this, you can understand everything in the kingdom. If you don't understand this, you will understand nothing in the kingdom. Okay, so seed, time, and harvest. Jesus, God wanted to redeem all of humanity, so he had to plant a seed to reap that harvest. So he takes his son, he plants him in a tomb, he raises as the firstborn among many brethren, and Jesus Christ was that down payment on the greater harvest. And so his kids are reaping the benefit of the wealth that he lived in, and instead of being righteous, they were partying and, and getting twisted on crunk juice every night, the Bible says, okay? That's the Hebrew for alcohol. Um, so you just read it. Like every night, one of the brothers would have a party and they were trust fund babies. They just lived it up. And not only was he all these things, but Job also was the kind of dad that makes you hate yourself as a father. Because it says that he would get up and he knew this, they were partying. He, he heard the 808 bass drums kicking and he saw the windows shaking and the strobe lights going. Now he could have stepped in, but these were adult children at the time. So he would get up every morning early and he would, he would fast and pray and he would make sacrifices for his own children. Like wouldn't sleep in. And, it, and, and here's why he did it. He said this, for Job said, verse 5, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did this continually. Killing animals, making sacrifices. I mean, it, this guy is just, he, he sets the bar so high. Then it gets into one day, there's this crazy thing that happens. There's a lot of ways you can go with Job. We're going to focus on his righteousness and the fine line. But you see this conversation that happens that gives us this picture of what is going on in the spirit realm when sometimes, I'm not going to say every time, but when sometimes bad things happen in our lives. It says that Satan came before the throne of God. Wait, I thought Satan got kicked out. Not yet. Now he's not, he doesn't have the position in heaven that he used to, but Satan still has access to go before the throne of God. And it says he's constantly accusing us before God day and night. What is he doing? He's looking for the faults. He's looking for fear, rebellion, um, stinginess, greediness, unforgiveness. And he's looking for access to cause us to be fruitless, to torment us, to gain a foothold or a stronghold into our life. This is why we are more fully developing a freedom ministry because there's a lot of folks that are saved and, and they're stuck. I was for many years. We all have to grow, but I was saved, 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 but I was bound in areas of my life until I realized how to deal with this. But Satan goes before God, and here's what he says to him. Um, the Lord has a conversation. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? If I'm Job, now he wasn't part of this conversation because it happened in the spirit world, but if I'm Job and I find this out, I'm like, whoa, don't bring my name up. What are you doing? What are you bringing my name up, man? You know, Bob is a creep. Like, you know, Jane, she got issues. But you just said I'm blameless. Don't talk about me to this dude. There is no one on earth like him, God says. He's bragging. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Verse 9 says, does Job, uh, Satan says, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? 
This shows us that Satan is only permitted to touch us if God says. This gives me security. Now, this is a, a trippy passage and story, but it says that Satan literally cannot touch you unless God gives permission. And if God gives permission, there's a reason. And if that reason is from God, it does not involve evil because God can do no evil. And whatever happens, it's to work for our good and for his glory. So just know that going into this. You have blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. Look at Satan has even given God glory. It's, it's, you're the reason. Yeah, he's smart, but you're the reason he's prospering and protected. But now, God, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Now, again, this is a tough story, but God allows Job to be tested and sifted. So the question is why? We're going to try and discover that over the next couple weeks. So here comes round one. Satan has just got the green light. He, he gets his posse or he goes solo and he starts messing with Job's life. I'm not going to read it all, but here's what happens. One servant comes to him and says, hey, Job, I got to tell you, I'm the only one that survived. These, this army came in and they stole all the oxen and the donkeys and they took all the livestock and they, they, they took the sword and they killed all of us servants. And I'm the only one who's escaped to tell. And then another servant comes and says, hey, man, I was chilling down at the 75 acres east property by the river and lightning came down from heaven and zapped all the sheep and they're all dead. I'm Job, I'm like, what? Like, lightning just microwaved all the sheep? Like, what is going on right now? Okay, servants are dead, livestock, and now lightning. It goes on, and while his kids are partying, another servant says, hey, there was this windstorm, and it came up from the desert. It hit all the four corners of the house, and your kids were throwing a rave, and the building collapsed, and every one of them died. I mean, this day is getting really bad. Does anybody agree with me here? Yeah. And, and, and I don't want to make light of this because to lose a loved one, to lose a child, some of you have gone through bankruptcy or whatever, and I know in the middle of it, maybe you're in the middle of something heavy. I don't want to make light of it. Um, but this is getting really heavy. Now, how would you respond if this was round one of your test? Most of us can't even stay saved in a traffic jam let alone lightning zapping your pets, okay? Now think about this. Job is a righteous man. He was truly righteous. He says this, at this, Job got up and tore his robe and he shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked, I came from my mother's womb and naked, I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. It says, in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now, this is tough because I don't know, I mean, if we polled every person in here and said, how many would come close to this response? I think the number would probably be zero. Maybe a one or two, and, and maybe it would take a little time, but that being your initial reaction, this is incredible. So, it goes on and, we, we're going to notice here that there is a fine line emerging when we look at the righteousness of Job 
we start to see possibly that there could be some pride that emerges from his heart. And that has been argued. There's some people that, oh, no, that's not in there. For me, I think that it's very clear as we get further into this. Satan presents himself to God again, saving you the time. They have the same conversation after round one. He, he comes before the throne. Job 2.3 says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Again, he says, There's no one like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now, this is interesting. God then adds this. And he still maintains his integrity. Everybody say his integrity. integrity. That's going to be key. Though you enticed me against him to ruin him without any reason. Isn't it interesting that Satan himself could find no fault. The greatest accuser that has the sharpest eye upon any flaw, even if it's not there. Satan didn't even bother with Job because he's always looking like Peter to sift, but he can only sift if God permits or if there's access provided through sin. And you'll see later, we won't read it, but his three friends come and they're like, dude, you had to have sinned. You had to have done something in secret that we don't know about. This would not happen to you. And he didn't. He, he, he wasn't guilty of it. Therefore, Satan could not see any fault in him. And I wonder if he couldn't see the self-righteousness in Job that we're going to see in a moment, because Lucifer or Satan himself is the most self-righteous being in existence. He couldn't recognize it because he's blinded by his own. Now again, Job is not a bad guy. God gives him nothing but accolades. And this is one of the trickiest, most subtle uh, sins that we can fall to. So it moves on and says, yet, so God allowed Satan to inflict suffering and He's doing it not because he wants to punish Job, not because he wants to be cruel, but there's something in Job that God wants to sift out. And there's something in the testimony of Job's response to suffering that he wants us to learn because the way Job responded was very Christ-like other than what might have been in his heart. But his actions and his words were on point. So here comes round two. Round two just paraphrasing, he gets struck with loathsome boils all over his body, painful from head to toe, and the scene is pathetic. We pick it up in verse 8, and it says that Job took a piece of broken pottery and sat there, and he scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. Here's the world's most righteous, wealthy, prominent leader, and he's sitting in a pile of ashes, naked, covered in boils, scraping himself with pottery. This is a bad scene. And here comes Queen Encouragement. His wife says to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity, Job? Curse God and die. Can we just pause right there? <laughs> Let's just say that Job didn't hitch his wagon to Esther or Mother Mary on his wedding day, okay? I don't think this woman read the five love languages, but had she, I don't think she would have discovered words of affirmation in her top two. Can I get an amen right here, right? Um, I feel like we need to nickname his wife round three, but we're not going to because we want to be nice. And if I'm Satan, I'm like, why does he need me? He's got her. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, 
of all the people that died in the storm, she survived. I'm kidding. Okay, we're going to move right along. Hey, ladies, um, next week I'll try and get a bad husband in there for you. Okay. Anyway, so, yet she's actually giving us a, a subtle clue. She seems to be exposing something that might have the scent of holier than thou in her husband. Well, what do you mean? We go back and she says, she says, are you still maintaining your integrity? How many husbands know your wives can see junk in you that the devil himself cannot see? And it's a gift. It hurts, but it's a gift. I'm just saying, there are things nobody sees. And you work the loophole and you, you operate by the letter of the law and you're never caught red-handed, but there's something in the discernment of this wife that's like, like, I know we just lost everything and you're sitting here in a pile of ash scraping your sores with my vase. But, but like, are you done holding on to your integrity, Mr. Righteous? So she's, her head is moving and she is, she is getting in his business, but I think she's pointing at something that he didn't even see in himself. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. I, I, I found it funny because I was like, man, this dude is so subtly awesome. He didn't, it says, even what he just said to his wife, he didn't sin. I, I, I go back to that argument. I could just see, did you just call me a foolish woman? He's like, no, I didn't call you a foolish woman. I said, you're acting like a foolish woman. Come on, how many loophole folks do we have in here? Oh, you are so hard to argue with. I'm one of you. No, but I didn't, I said you were like one of those other women and that's not your true identity. That's not you. So Job's innocence remains true in all he did and everything he said. But the pressure is now getting to Job. He starts to crack. And he will stay true to the letter of the law and the letter of righteousness. But the heart of or the spirit of true righteousness will be exposed. And it will emerge as we see this exalting of self-piety come forth from Job. Now we get into where he starts to crack and now he goes, and, and I'm not, trust me, this is, I'm not judging Job. Like I, I couldn't have put up with this. But Job now kind of goes to the pity party. And, and I hate calling it a pity party because anybody who goes through this deserves a, a pity bash, right? Like this is terrible. But he says this, Job 3, uh, 1 through 8. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He gets melodramatic here, and this is poetry. He says, May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. Now, this is interesting because it looks like he's just suffering, but there's this subtle self-absorption here. If I'm, if I'm him, he's making, he's making it so much about himself. 
if I shared his birthday, I'm like, bro, that's my same day. Like, don't screw that up for me. Like, you want to destroy this day and remove it. Why does it all have to be about you? And again, very subtle, nothing overt, but you start to see the fine line emerge. It goes on, and this was just fascinating. I thought this was funny. He says, may the night be barren. May no shouts of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. That's interesting. Like, that was like a career option, a day cursor. You know, I just thought that like, may those who curse days curse this day. I can just imagine that conversation. What do you do? I'm a plumber. How about you, pal? I curse days. Oh, that's a thing, right? Yeah, you can hire me. You know, I'll do birthdays, baptisms, bar mitzvahs, anything with a B in it, bowling nights, barbecues, burials, you know what I'm saying? Like, what are you talking about, right? Yeah, just hire me. Any day you want on the calendar, I'll curse it. This is just weird. He's saying, may those who curse days curse this very day. He's getting broken and his self-righteousness is emerging. And here we go. This is where we see it. Chapter 29. We're going to fast forward 26 chapters. And this is where we really see what was in his heart. Job 29.7. And before I do, we're given... 52 clues pointing to Job's self-righteousness in this passage because Job uses the word I, me, and mine 52 times in 25 verses. Fascinating. It says, when I went out to the city gate, so he's talking about himself. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew. The aged rose and stood the princes refrained from talking and they laid their hands over their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it approved because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me. And I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. Now, it's interesting. He's talking about how wise he is, how people admire him, and how much good he's actually doing. And James 1.27 says that pure religion is to visit or minister to the fatherless and to widows. And he's saying, I did this, and he did, and that's why he was righteous. But it goes on and he says, verse 14, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice, not God's, but his own. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. And I searched out the cause of him who did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Men listened to me and waited and kept silent for my counsel. I was a great mentor. When I sat at the table, everybody turned to me and everybody looked to me because they knew I had the answer. And they knew I would have the solution. After I spoke, they did not speak. And my words dropped upon them. He basically was like, I dropped the mic a lot. They waited for me as for the rain. And they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. It's like somebody that's in a drought and it starts raining. And they're like, like a little bird being fed a, a worm every time Job showed up. Can you see the self-exaltation? Anybody? Is it, is it evident? I smiled on them when they had no confidence and the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief 
And I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. Here's the fascinating thing. Job's sin was not anything he did. His sin was who he was. He was self-righteous. There's nothing wrong with an awareness of what you've done right. But when you weigh what you've done right as a measurement of your value and your importance, there we have a problem. You're gonna be aware of your good deeds because you have a brain and you have a memory and there's nothing wrong with even glorifying God that you got to be a part of it. And you can't do this false humility thing where you don't share the testimony of God's goodness because we see in the New Testament that they, they got encouraged, they were sharing what God did through them. And so you can't hide the great stories, but when you share it in a way to exalt yourself and lift yourself up, or when you weigh your goodness in a way that makes you seem more important than other people, even though he did nothing on the outside, internally God recognized something in him that needed to be sifted. He rattles off this long list of things that he had done and if we could have lifted up his long hipster shirt and looked at the belt holding up his skinny jeans 5,000 years ago or whatever, we would have seen a bunch of notches in his belt from all the good deeds that he had marked and he had memorized. You know, scripture says that love does not keep a record of wrong, but we also should understand that real righteousness does not keep a record of right. Now, I know that sounds really weird, it will keep the record of rights that other people have done, but when it comes to self, we can rejoice, we can thank God for it, we can remember it as a way to remember God in a fresh way, but when we start to accumulate all of our good deeds and start to make a case as to why we should be favored and loved by God, our own righteousness is as filthy rags. There are none righteous, no, not one, not even Job. Does anybody agree with that today? Amen? So he aces the letter of the law, but he, he's flunking the spirit of the law. Now here's where God takes him to the woodshed. Job 38, and then we're gonna wrap up. Job 38, I, this is a fascinating verse. This is, God says to Job, now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you and you will instruct me. Let me read this in the UFC version of the Bible. He basically says, hey young man, put on your cup and meet me in the octagon because we're going to go another couple rounds, okay? This is what he's saying to him. Like what do my loins have to do with this? This is kind of scary. What's going on here? He says, get yourself ready like a man because I have something that I got to say to you. Now here's what's crazy. He didn't do anything wrong. It's what was in his heart. And God is so focused on keeping us free from self-righteousness that he will go to extreme measures to make sure that it is rooted out when it needs to be. And it's painful to read, but I'm telling you, I've been through that ringer. I've been in that octagon more times than I would like. Raise your hand if you can join me in those who wear the marks of being disciplined. Says this, just to set it up, he's dealing with his engineering builder, brilliant mind. He's basically saying, hey, Job, I know that you're a major engineer and, you know, you're so smart and you're so wise and you've got these pyramids everywhere and, and you build great structures. Um, but I want to ask you a question. Next time you go out and you use the stones I created, 
and you stack them to build your cute triangles. Um, I want to ask you this question, Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have such understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? What supports its foundations and who laid the cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with its doors when it burst out from the womb? So the discipline goes on for four chapters. God just takes him through the ringer. And then finally, Job gets to this point where he's like, I've had enough. I finally see what my friends couldn't show me. Satan couldn't show me. And he even argued with God about that he was righteous. He could not see it in himself. And finally we get to the end and Job repents and he confesses. And it says this in Job 42, one through six. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It's pretty heavy, isn't it? But here's the beautiful thing that God works through all this. And again, I know it's so easy for Dave in 2019 to stand up here and, you know, Rabbi Reesinger playing armchair quarterback, like, oh, look at Job, how he screwed up. Trust me, like, I, I would have never made it nearly as far as Job in that test. But here's what happens. Job confesses his self-righteousness. He repents. And then God gives him double what he got. Anything he ever had, God multiplies back. The point was that he loved Job he loved him so much that he was willing to put him through something that would root out the thing that would keep Job from being a, a truly righteous testimony to so many that he was helping in his generation. God grants him another 140 years of life and he got to see four generations of kids and grandkids after this. So God takes extreme measures and I'll close with this. And this is what we're gonna launch off of next week. Today, I don't have any conclusions other than giving you an opportunity to respond based on what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. Uh, we'll get into the roots and the remedy next, next week, but we'll launch off of this. Comparing Job to the Apostle Paul, Paul was blessed with some major things. He was given revelations and visions and he was taken up into the third heaven and he had a favor and influence and an anointing that, that others didn't have. He got to encounter Jesus and he got to write uh, you know, the vast majority of our New Testament. And he was well-trained. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He talks about in one passage, I think it's Philippians, he said, man, if anybody has the, the right to boast, I do. Pharisee of Pharisees. When it comes to the law, uh, blameless, perfect. You know, raised in this, in this council. And he said, but all that next to Christ is dung. He said, he said all my degrees and, 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 and all my accolades and all my education and all the things that I used to stand on and people used to praise as righteous and you're so amazing and look at you, you're so knowledgeable. He said, literally, I look at it like a big pile of crap next to the treasure I have in Christ. That's in the scripture. That's in the scripture. 
Now, God used his brilliance, but look what God had to do. And again, tough scripture. But it says this, because he had these surpassing great revelations and favor, he says this, or even with these surpassingly great revelations, so to keep me from becoming conceited or self-righteous, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. What? The super apostle, because he had such great influence and intelligence and anointing, God said, I do not want you to lose your Christ-centeredness and humility and heart of the gospel because if you start to get high on your own supply, you're gonna forget what grace and mercy and the cross is all about and you're gonna misrepresent me. And so because I know you better than anybody knows you, I'm going to allow a messenger of Satan to buffet you. Here's what the word buffet means. It's to strike with a fist repeatedly and violently. It means literally hit with the knuckles to make a stinging, crushing blow. It says three times, verse eight, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will boast. Now he uses the flip here. I'm talking about self-righteousness. I'm gonna boast, but I'm gonna boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. That's real righteousness right there. Now, in closing, some of you are like, man, if that's what happens to really righteous and smart people, help me stay dumb, right? <laughs> help me keep screwing up because I'd rather live with a little shame than get some buffeting. That's nothing to fear but understand that our heart is deceitfully wicked and pride can pose as humility. And Christians especially because we have been made righteous in Christ and we are perfected in God's eyes through Jesus Christ. But the minute I start taking credit for that and the minute I start using it as a way to chalk up why I should be valuable to God or why I'm better than others, at that point, we need to be aware that God in his love will discipline us. So here's what we get to do. We get to respond like Job and like Paul. With every head bowed and every eye closed. If you're in here today, first of all, I want to say the most prideful position there is in this life is to say that there is no God or to say that I have no need of God, I'm fine, I can do it on my own, I'm good enough. Listen, none of us are good enough to get into heaven. And God loves us so much. I know this is a, a, a harder word because it maybe could make us think that God is somehow mean or cruel and he's not at all. But we have to understand that the same way our kids freak out because we withhold or we discipline or maybe we've had to spank them they don't know it then, but what we're doing is we're actually shaping them into the beautiful identity that God designed for them. But sometimes that process hurts. And so today you're in here and maybe you've never received Christ as your savior. And today you want to experience God putting his righteousness on you and making you right in the eyes of God. 
Maybe you've fallen away from him and you've lived your own life and, and, and you haven't included him. And today you're either coming to Jesus for the first time or you're coming back, if you will, to Jesus because you've been going astray. If either of those are you today, I just want you to slip your hand up and just say, God, I'm, I'm not too prideful to admit it. Thank you for that hand. Thank you so much. Don't be ashamed. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Five, six, seven, anyone else? Come on, raise your hand. Let God deal with your heart. It's pride. Thank you, ma'am. It's pride that keeps us from responding. And then lastly, thank you for those hands. Lastly, you're in here today. You're saved. You know you're saved, but maybe this has been some self-righteousness in you. And, and, and maybe you're, you're quickly judgmental of other people. And today you're like, God, I don't want that in me. It could be small and God's showing you, or, or, or it could be something that's almost become a part of your identity. And it's hard for you to be around other people that make so many mistakes. How can they live like that? Well, when, when are they going to get their stuff together? Yes, we don't tolerate sin. It's no license. But at the same time, we got to remember that like self-righteousness means that we measure our own righteousness to other people's righteousness when we should be measuring our righteousness to the perfect righteousness, which is Christ, which means we all fall so far short that none of us can brag. And so today, if that's just in your heart, listen, there's been many times I've had to repent of this myself, but I just want you to acknowledge it before God and let him heal you. Let him forgive you. Come on, hold your hand up and say, God, I want that taken out. Thank you so much. So many people, so many people. Praise God. So here's what I'm gonna do. Pride hates this. Pride really hates this. Why don't you look at me? We're gonna, we're gonna sing this song. And pride doesn't want to admit its weakness in front of others, but this is a community of faith. I'm not gonna have you get on the mic and talk about how you're self-righteous, but I want to open these altars up. And I'm gonna ask that you come down during this last song. And I ask that you don't dismiss until um, I come closest to the end. We're gonna receive our offering, but this is a ministry time. And I want you to come to this altar and I want you to bring with you whatever that self-righteousness or pride is. And I want you to lay it here and do business with God. We're not gonna have any team members pray for you. I just want you to come up and in your own words, come down and meet the Lord. Come on, stand to your feet. We're gonna sing. If you raised your hand, make your way down. And this is symbolic and you're dealing a blow to pride saying, no, I wanna stay anonymous. I wanna, I wanna just protect my image. No, come on, let's throw your image under the bus and let God give you the image that he wants. One that is dependent upon him. Praise God. And if you're not coming forward, then why don't you just sing with us with all your heart?